Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is good to be with you another Monday evening where we continue our reflections into the book of Revelation. And before we jump into our subject matter, I do just want to continue to thank all of you for tuning in to Seeds of Truth, whether you are listening live uh, locally or if you are tuning in by way of podcast. It is warming to know that uh, you are taking time out of your busy schedule to join me here in our reflections on the richness and beauty of the Catholic faith, and in particular right now as it comes to us in and through the book of Revelation. And if you have been with us, you know that we are in this letter to Thyatira, right? And before we continue, I just want to offer up a a brief summary of where we left off. So we were talking about how the church of Thyatira, and really the town of Thyatira itself, was one of the leading centers for trade in Asia Minor. Um, And Because of this, it had an extraordinary number of trade guilds, which was quite relevant, right? Why? Well, each guild had a god whom all the members were required to worship. And this worship often included immoral sexual conduct and the eating of food offered to idols, which was condemned by the apostles at the Council of Jerusalem. Now, this situation posed a difficult dilemma for converts who supported their families by working for these guilds, right? I mean, this was a very practical dilemma for the faithful Christians in Thyatira. So Jesus recognizes that the church at Thyatira is continuing to grow and to do better works. However, apparently someone in the community, as we were discussing last time, was leading Christians into the sins of immorality and the eating of unclean food, quite possibly in the worship of the guild gods previously mentioned. Uh, This person is compared to who? As verse 20 mentions, Jezebel, right? Now, our Lord's self-description as the one who searches the mind and heart and who will give to each of you as your works deserve evokes what the Lord says to Jeremiah. That passage, I, the Lord, search the mind and try the heart to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So, from the passage in Revelation, John implicitly underscores the fact that Jesus is the Lord and that he knows our inner self, knowing the state of our heart. And how important is that? We might do one thing so that someone might see what we do, but in the end, what motivates us to do what we do? Why do we do what we do? Most recently, I posted a blog talking about the modus operandi, You know, what operates your motives? Why do you do what you do? What is your method of operation? What makes you tick? Why do you get up in the morning? These are important questions, questions you have heard me ask before, but questions nonetheless that are important each and every day. Why? Because if Jesus is not our motivation, and if selfish motives drive us, we have to change. We have to look at that a lot closer and ask the question, okay, Lord, what is it in my life that I need to change? And if you are having a difficult time figuring that out, 
it probably has something to do with what the first thing is you're thinking about in the morning and or what the last thing is you're thinking about before you go to bed at night. So there is a very concrete challenge here that comes to us from this letter. Now, as it relates to the warning, certainly this remains applicable today. Sometimes we refuse to detach ourselves from certain sins. And so we try to justify ourselves by multiplying our good deeds. This idea of how we try to bargain with God, thinking we can continue to sin as long as we you know, pay God his due. Brothers and sisters, as I said last time, this is a perversion of the gospel and a distorted vision of love. What does Jesus say in John chapter 14, verse 15? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we have this call to give ourselves totally to him, right? That means to give ourselves to him without condition. I mean, how many of us do things solely upon what we get back in return? Right? So often we are motivated, right, to do certain things to the extent that, well, I'm going to get this in return or that in return. My dear friends, the very nature of love condemns that. And this is why we are all called to this gradual transformation in Christ, because we constantly battle this, this desire to get something in return for what we do. And this is what is before us each and every day. What is that great passage that comes to us? From Colossians 3, verse 10, we are called to put on the cloth of Christ. We are called to wear the garment of virtue. We are called to love as Jesus taught us to love. So, in the end, while others may see our works and marvel, if it is not rooted in love, we have a problem. And we should always remember that Jesus sees and knows our heart. This is why over the course of these last, oh, I don't know how many years, we've talked so much about the importance of interior transformation, interior conversion. Because if our heart does not change, then our actions that may change are not a reflection of what is important. And so before anything changes in our lives, let it first be the heart. Okay, now chapter 2, verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay upon you any other burden. So what's going on here? Well, it's to remember that ancient pagan religions claimed to be able to teach their members profound truths or, or secret knowledge, often referred to as mysteries. Now, the, some of the words we read here, is probably a reference to this, that Jesus speaks of some in Thyatira as receiving knowledge of the deep things of Satan. Now, Christians at Thyatira are warned not to join the local cults, which essentially was associated with Roman soldiers and secret levels of secret initiation. Jesus is calling them out there, huh? About verses 25 to 27. Only hold fast what you have until I come. He who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, I will give him power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, 
even as I myself have received power from my Father. So Jesus tells believers that those who continue in his quote-unquote works will be allowed to share in his rule. A very important word, right? Share, to participate. Huh? The reference to the iron rod and earthen pots is no doubt an allusion to Psalm 2, which was typically understood as a prophecy concerning the Messiah. There in that chapter, the Davidic king conquers the rulers of the earth who have broken their covenant relationship with the king and tried to defeat him. So Jesus is comforting those who are struggling with fellow Christians who have fallen and encouraging them not to reject him. And, and how about that? I think that's important for us to for us to understand that once again, Jesus understands the situations of the people at that time. And in the same way, does he understand our situation today? If we are struggling with fellow Christians who have fallen, our Lord encourages us not to allow that to get us down. We are never called to allow another person's weakness to dictate how we are called to love. This is quintessential to the Christian and Catholic spiritual life. Okay, verses 28 to 29. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Christ's promise to the faithful the morning star here might be a reference to life in the new creation, which is about to dawn, huh? We read later in chapter 22, verse 16, that Christ himself is the morning star. Those who endure then are promised that they will enter into our Lord's presence forever in heaven. And of course, as we've already talked about, the Eucharist is this foretaste, where Christians are given a share in Again, the morning star. Now, the reference to he who has an ear, let him hear, recalls the prophet's warnings to Israel to repent in the face of coming judgment, right? Isaiah was the prophet who was told to go to Jerusalem, ripe and ready for judgment, and say, hear and hear, but do not understand. See and see, but do not perceive one of the great prophecies from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. So likewise, Jesus uses this expression after the Jewish leaders reject him in Matthew 12, when he preaches in parables to them, saying, He who has ears, let him hear. The implication in the book of Revelation is, unless Christians in Thyatira repent, they will be judged. They will be judged. And so, all throughout this book, Revelation, we have this before us, this call to repent in the light of our coming judgment. So once again, something uh, very important. Now, the letter to Thyatira encourages a question that I think comes into our mind and heart from time to time, depending on where you're at in your faith. Does God punish me? You know, when troubles come, a sickness, an accident— it is common for people to wonder if God is judging them. Some Christians live their whole lives with a, a morbid sense of fear and guilt under this idea. However, most evils 
and this is very important, my friends, to understand. Most evils that befall people are not particular divine judgments for wrongdoing, but are what? A consequence of the evil in the world unleashed by original sin. God does not desire them, but permits them. Why? Because he uses them to bring good to those who love him. If you go to, to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, this is Paul's very point. It is often not possible to understand why calamities occur to us, or for that matter, others. Besides leading us to pray for those who suffer, these can be good occasions for taking stock of our lives. My dear friends, we can only control what we can control, right? So let us start taking control of what we can control and stop worrying about what we can't control, to the least of which brings us back to that question we already asked. Why do I do what I do? What makes me tick? Okay, we need to take stock in our lives. And this does not mean becoming overscrupulous, but rather honestly considering whether there is any sin we need to face up to, and if so, to turn from it and seek forgiveness. If sickness comes our way, Sirach chapter 38 verses 9 to 14 gives us sound advice. Pray for healing, repent of sin, make an offering to God, and go to the doctor, right? <laughs> and of course, Jesus adds that when we pray, we must forgive those who we have anything against. James also recommends that we ask the priest for prayer and anointing, that we confess our sins and, and pray fervently for one another. So certainly, while tragedies around us have us looking at our lives differently, our own sickness should do the same both of which should increase a deeper examination of conscience and ultimately a deeper life in prayer. So this is what is before us, certainly as we continue to go through these letters to these churches, these letters that have so many lessons for us. Now, that being said, let us turn to chapter 3 and this letter to Sardis, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the name of being alive and you are dead. Awake and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death. For I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep that and repent. If you will not awake, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who conquers shall be clad thus in white garments, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." So in this letter, our Lord continues to echo some similar things, huh? Now, it's interesting. Sardis was known for being, oh, we could call it the Beverly Hills of Asia Minor. I mean, it was an extremely wealthy city. 
The city was known throughout the ancient world as the place to shop for luxury goods, if you will. Carpets, for example, were used in palaces as far away as Persia. Likewise, Sardis perfumes were world-renowned. So, what did our Lord say? You have the name of being alive. However, the goodness of the church is clearly only skin deep, because what does Jesus add? And you are dead. So Jesus tells the church to awake, right? Repent. Okay, what else is going on here? Well, there's an interesting reflection to be had as it relates to what's going on in this church, and maybe what's going on in our local parishes. Sometimes parishes have incredibly busy calendars. Maybe you belong to this parish. Dances, bingo nights, plays, pancake breakfasts, recycling drives, trips to sporting events, youth trips to amusement parks, etc., etc. Yet, although the parish may have the reputation of being alive, being busy, doing many things, spiritually, spiritually, as our Lord warns here in this passage, it may be what? Dead. More people might be going to bingo nights than to mass. More people might be standing in line for the pancake breakfast than standing in line for confession. Christ wants to teach us a different kind of active parish, if you will. We must always keep in mind that what really makes a parish or a church alive isn't exclusively how many social activities are going on, but the sacramental life, which animates the church. Likewise, a parish's liturgy is not alive because it has great singing, exciting guitars, or or lively bongos, all of which could be good, but it's only alive as much as hearts are centered in the Eucharist. There's a lot of discussion today about the maintenance church versus the missionary church. Do you belong to a church that is just maintaining itself? presenting itself to be active, but in the end does not have Jesus at the center and is not forming intentional disciples for Christ. huh? Because a missionary church is about doing anything and everything to form disciples for Christ, to form men and women, young and old, to go out and evangelize for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus Christ. And in the light of this, we are all called to ask the question, what role do I have in my local parish? What role do I have in my local church? Because be rest assured, my friends, each and every one of us have a role to play, have something to say about transforming a maintenance parish into a missionary parish, a parish that brings about very real change. And as I've already talked about, just not external change, but internal change. So very important, I think, reflection there to be had as we once again practically apply 2,000 years later what's going on in these letters. What else is going on in these verses? Well, verses 4 to 6, what did we read? Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. 
He who conquers shall be clad thus in white garments, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Some rich, rich verses. Now, those who have not fallen away from Christ are referred to as the ones who have not soiled their garments. Revelation chapter 19, verse 8, tells us that the bright white linen garments are the righteous deeds of the saints. So clean garments imply what? But continued Christian faithfulness. The early Christians, as many of us know, adopted the use of white garments as a symbol for holiness by giving the newly baptized white garments. Certainly this is still seen in churches today. As we read these verses, one of the things that continues to emerge is is Christ's persistence in his encouragement of those who are being faithful to the gospel. And again, this should be encouraging for us, any of us who might be struggling in fighting the good fight, running the race. Now, a few programs ago, I was talking about the Greek word nikau and the word conquer and how there might be a word play with the, with the heresy of that time, the Nicolaitans, right? There's an additional reflection to be had with this Greek. In chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus makes great promises to the victor. At the end of the book, the one who conquers inherits what? The new Jerusalem, life-giving water, and divine sonship. Now, the Greek word for the victor is what? But nikau. Other New Testament passages teach the importance of conquering. And as we've talked about, the word nikau also means conquering. John, in his first epistle, uses it six times, always in reference to how Christians have overcome the world and the devil by their faith in Jesus. In his farewell discourse, Jesus uses this verb nikau about himself. Listen to this in chapter 16, verse 33. In the world you will have trouble, but take courage. I have conquered the world. Paul uses it in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, chapter 12, verse 21, and in an intensified form in chapter 8, verse 37. In all these things we conquer overwhelmingly through him who loved us. So in all these uses, the word conquer implies what? Human struggle and prevailing in battle, but only by relying on God's strength. What did St. Augustine say about life in general? (laughs) Life is a struggle in grace. I think St. Augustine very well may have had chapter 8, verse 37 in mind. In all these things we conquer overwhelmingly through him who loved us. This human struggle in grace when we lean into God, rely on God's strength, we can overcome all things. We need to allow ourselves to be dominated by God. The very word Lord in the Greek, Kyrios, means to be dominated by. And we're not dominated by God in in the context of, say, master-slave, no, but as father-son, that we are consumed in God's love, by and in God's love. This is the intended meaning of Lord and Kyrios, yes, but also what is going on with this word conquer, that 
we are called to allow God to conquer us. This is what lies at the heart of that Greek nikau. And it is very important for us to reflect upon this because so many times in our own lives, we allow other things to conquer us or dominate us. And I'm just not talking about, say, a nation, a government, or even a person, but things, addictions, what we idolize, anything that consumes us so that we are not free to become the person that God calls us to be, right? Have you ever thought about it in that context? As we've touched upon this before, this might be a new context, a context that is very specific to the word being conquered by, being consumed by, being dominated by. The Lord says, literally, right, Kyrios, allow me to dominate you. I have the message of everlasting life. This commercial or person might say to you, I have the answer that'll bring to you eternal happiness. But you and I both know, my friends, if it is an earthly promise, it is not a lasting promise. The only kind of promises that last are the ones that come to us from Jesus Christ. And these are the kinds of promises we are to abide in. Amen? Amen. Okay, I'm looking up at the clock and we are out of time. We will pick up here uh, next time, which will have us in the letter to Philadelphia. Okay, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you a special thanks and praise for the gift of this opportunity to reflect into the richness of your New Testament text in the book of Revelation, these inspired words that you revealed to John the Evangelist. We do ask that these words uh, might enrich our own lives and we might see them transform our lives, your very words, which are your very life. And so we are grateful for the gift of the book of Revelation and so many of the things that we've already talked about, and we look forward to the many things that we have yet to talk about, things, topics, subject matter, that indeed transforms to the degree that it opens up and discloses um, infinite wisdom, as the Holy Bible does. We are grateful for that. So... We do close with that prayer that you taught us, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death, all glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.